It would be a mistake to jump into talking about the cross, the cross of Christ, without first spending some time talking about what made the cross of Christ necessary in the first place. I think the average human being has some sense that we have a sin problem. Now, we may not exactly agree on what constitutes sin. We may differ in our understanding of the pervasiveness of sin. But all of us, on some level, understand that there is something that is wrong with the human race. Now, we will also probably differ on how we think justice should be carried out in response to wrongs, sins, lawlessness that's committed. But I think we'll all agree that on some level, sins should be dealt with. Wrongs should be atoned for. We all likely appreciate the need for sin to be punished. Parents of young children learn this very quickly. We understand that if our children, particularly the very young ones, if they're acting inappropriately and we don't arrest that behavior, then bad habits are formed. Then that misbehavior becomes a pattern that they live out. It flourishes in their life if we don't arrest it and stop it. Well, I realize our methods of discipline will vary person to person, parent to parent, but the goal of discipline will always be the same. We want to convey to our children that what they did or what they are doing isn't appropriate. We want to communicate to them that what they're doing can't continue. Then if... We are parents who really want to make sure that the pattern isn't repeated. We have to come up with a suitable punishment for the thing that they've done wrong. And I think we recognize instinctively that punishment should always be proportionate to the thing they've done wrong. The punishment should be proportionate to the thing they've done wrong. For example, if your young child refuses to eat his dinner, the most common punishment is to say, well, then you don't get any dessert. Now, it wouldn't be proportionate to to, to take the child outside and, and, and discipline them harshly for not eating their broccoli. But it is a proportionate punishment to say, well, you're not getting any ice cream unless you eat the broccoli. But if our child does do something more serious, if our child destroys something, or if our child harms someone, We recognize instinctively that withholding a cookie isn't going to be sufficient punishment for what they have done. We understand that the greater the crime, the more severe the punishment. I think we have some sense. I think we have some understanding of how serious sin is. We have some understanding that sin needs to be punished at least on some level. But I would submit to you this morning on Good Friday that we do not fully understand the seriousness of our sin. We do not fully appreciate the need for our own sin 
to be punished by God. That's not a pleasant thought. That doesn't make me feel terrific to say that I don't fully appreciate and it's probably the case that you don't fully appreciate the need, the necessity of our sin to be punished by a holy God. Why is this so? Why don't we fully understand the seriousness of our sin? Well, here's my challenge. And again, I'm thinking back through my lens as a parent, uh, looking at my daughter who's maybe doing something that's wrong, that's not appropriate. And what often comes to my mind when I see my daughter or when I see a young person acting up, doing something that's inappropriate, doing something worthy of discipline, what often goes through my mind is the fact that I used to do the same thing. I see them over there doing that thing or not doing that thing. I see the disruption. I see the distraction. I see them talking when they shouldn't be talking, doing this when they shouldn't be doing this. And I think, that was me. I used to behave that way. And as one who has been guilty of the same things that I see in others, what that does is it makes me less inclined to have that person be punished or disciplined. How can I discipline someone for the thing that I used to do? How can I punish someone for a sin that I used to commit? You see, in my mind, the seriousness of another person's missteps, the seriousness of another person's sins is diminished when I think about my own missteps and when I think about my own sins. In other words, because I am a sinner... I have a fairly high tolerance for sin in others. I have a fairly high tolerance for sin in myself. But I think the more important question to ask is, what is God's tolerance level for sin? The more important, the more relevant question to ask is, what does God think about your sin? What does God think about my sin? Does God view our errors and our missteps? Does He view them as serious? Or does He look at them as inconsequential? And since God fully understands why these things happen, does that diminish in any way His resolve to punish sin? Since God is the only being in this universe who understands all of the complexities of human behaviors, when we sin, He can trace it all the way back to its root. He gets it better than anyone else. Does this diminish His resolve to deal with sin? Since He fully understands our vulnerabilities, is God able in some way to wink at us and say, just... Just try to do better next time. Because that's usually my approach to sin. That's usually my approach to missteps and errors I see in others. But is that God's way? If forgiveness is forgiveness automatically bestowed to us, if we shrug our shoulders in prayer and say, Lord, I'm only human, I'm flawed, I'm not perfect. You're just going to have to pardon me. This is the way I am. Friends, probably one of the most sobering realities in the universe is clear from the testimony of Scripture. And this is frightening to consider. 
This is what Scripture says. Sin, our sin, makes the God of this universe angry. Now I'm eager to talk about God's love. And we will. I'm eager to talk about God's mercy. And we will. But we must not ignore the reality, the clear testimony of Scripture, that our sin makes the God of this universe angry. Author John Piper writes, God's anger at sinners is the biggest problem in everyone's life, whether we know it or not. God's anger at sinners is the biggest problem in everyone's life, whether we know it or not. Piper goes on to liken our attempts to ignore sin or to diminish its seriousness or its threat. He says it's like having a gas leak all around a pilot light that threatens to blow your basement to smithereens and burn down your house. It's like ignoring that gas leak is to ignore sin. From the beginning of Scripture in Genesis to the end of Scripture in Revelation, the message is always consistent. Sin is serious. Sin angers God. And sin must be punished. So in the Old Testament, in order to convey to the people of Israel how serious sin was, God set up the sacrificial system. So what He could have done is He could have made the people of Israel die for their sins. But in order to show, in order to have mercy on the people, but yet on the other hand show them the seriousness of their sin, He had animals die instead. He had the sacrificial system set up. And so you have this gruesome execution, this regular gruesome execution of valuable, unblemished animals. You couldn't bring in a sick one. You couldn't bring in a weak one. You had to bring in your very best to be sacrificed. And the requirements of this sacrificial system were designed to aggravate and to stir the human conscience. The system was designed to communicate to the people of Israel just how serious an affront their sin was to a holy God. The sacrificing of animals and the subsequent sprinkling of their blood was intended to signify that this is how God would pardon and forgive sin. But as you well know, there were shortcomings with that sacrificial system. The sacrifices needed to be repeated. Why? Because sin was repeated. So the sacrifices were good for that particular body of sin that the people had committed, but as they sinned again, they needed new sacrifices. Furthermore, the sacrifices did not change the way the people behaved. In other words, the sacrificial system was inadequate at dealing with the core problem of sin. Its function was to merely remind the people of their sin. 
And while the sprinkling of animals' blood signified the forgiveness of sins, the author of Hebrews sets the record straight. And this is very important because some people imagine that God deals differently with His people in regard to their sin in different dispensations. But He doesn't. Listen to what God's Word says in Hebrews 10 verse 4. He says, It is impossible... Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So it's not the case that this is how God forgave in the olden days and He does something new in our day. No, it was never the case that the blood of bulls and goats could deal adequately with our sin. You might even say that the sacrificial system that God set up, it didn't even work. But you might also say it was never really intended to work. It's as if the system was intended to be instructional. It's as if the the sacrificial system was intended to prepare us for a better system or a better way. This system was designed to help us and prepare us to understand the meaning of the death of God's Son. Jesus Christ. And this is how Hebrews 10 begins. The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near. The message to the Jewish readers is that the ceremonial law, which was temporary, which was preparatory, it need not be perpetuated today in the face of the very form of things, which is Christ. Since Christ, we read in verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, He's procured forgiveness. We need not seek righteousness or pardon from any other source. Unquestionably, the author of the book of Hebrews wanted his Jewish readers to leave behind the ceremonial aspects of the law and to cease from trusting in that law for their salvation. And so to this end, the author of Hebrews painstakingly contrasts the old system with the new. The old system required many, many priests. The new system requires only one priest. The old system required repeated sacrifices. The new one perfect sacrifice for all time is offered. The old system did nothing to change the sinful nature of God's people. But the new covenant marked the beginning of a lifelong process whereby God's children would be made perfect, made like His Son. Now I realize that there's no one in this room who's tempted to go back to those old Jewish practices. There's no one here who I think wants to go back to the, the rigid, meticulous law of Israel and to trust in that and our obedience to that as our way of salvation. That doesn't describe anyone here. But what I have found in 17 years of pastoral ministry is that it is a tendency, it is a temptation to create for ourselves a law to obey. 
What do I mean by that? There is a tendency among Christians, probably of every age, but certainly of this age, to highlight for themselves in Scripture certain standards and believing that if we keep those standards that that we pull out, then God will surely have mercy on us. Let me give you a few examples. Some of you are thinking, well, I pray regularly. I pray every single day. I pray several times a day. Friends, your prayers cannot put away your sin. Some of you are thinking, I do daily Bible readings. I read through the Bible, the entire Bible in a year. And that means I'm reading it all the time. I have it on my phone and on my iPad. I'm always reading my Bible. Well, certainly I want to commend and encourage those who pray regularly and read their Bible regularly. But those two habits cannot remove your sin. Some of you are thinking, well, I attend Sunday worship regularly. I never miss. I attend Good Friday. Here I am. I was at Monday Thursday last night. There I was. I also go to midweek Bible study. I never miss anything. Ladies group, unless I'm a man, then you probably miss that. But you're thinking, I go to all sorts of things. If there is awards given for attendance, I would win them. Friends, your participation in these very important things can no more save you than sacrificing a goat can. It is important that we gather for worship, that we pray and that we read our Bible, but none of those things take away our sins. Now probably the most widely held notion, at least in society in general, is this. You'll meet someone and and you'll ask them, why do you think you're going to heaven? Or what makes you think you're going to go into heaven when you die? This is what you'll hear from many. Well, I realize I'm not perfect. I've made some mistakes, and maybe even many mistakes. But you need to know that I try to be a good person. I try my very best to treat others fairly. I make every effort to do unto others as they might do unto me. Friends, there's no amount of goodness that we can muster on our own that can equal the standard required by a holy God. Let's be honest with ourselves and with one another. We do not pray as we ought. We do not worship as we ought. We do not treat others as we ought. And we most certainly do not treat God as we ought. We do not honor Him as we should. The bad news is that we are sinners. And as sinners, we sin. And our sin needs to be punished by God. But here's the thing. Our sin was punished by God. This is why we call the day of crucifixion Good Friday. Because our sin needs to be punished. And it was punished. Your sin, my sin, it was punished. It was atoned for. It was dealt with. The penalty which we deserve, the punishment for our sins, it fell upon Him. God the Father didn't say, oh, just keep trying. Try to do better next time. 
He did not wink at her sin. He did not sweep it under the carpet. He nailed His Son to the cross. He forsook His Son on the cross so that we might never be forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was the words of Christ. He did not simply feel forsaken. He was forsaken. And because He was forsaken, you never will be. If you trust in Him. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Who having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Sat down at the right hand of God. As our beloved hymn well puts it. I will not boast in anything. No gifts no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Or as Charles Spurgeon has ably said, from top to bottom, from foundation to pinnacle, our hopes must be in the work of Jesus and we must trust in Him alone or else we shall build in vain. In other words, in Christ we have one perfect sacrifice. If our faith is in Christ, He will put away all of our sins for all time. And I can think of nothing better. Christ is many things. Christ is our teacher. Christ is our prophet. Christ is our priest. But none of these things can help us unless He first be our sacrifice. We must not shun the gruesomeness of this reality. I realize our dialogue with those outside the church, outside the faith, would be a lot easier if we could simply limit our discussion to the moral excellence of Jesus. Or if we could talk about just the compassion of Jesus. Or if we could limit our discussion to the wisdom of Jesus. We would get on far better in this world if we could limit our discussion to those things. But if we neglect to celebrate the sacrificial death of Jesus, we are neglecting the most important part of the Christian faith. If we neglect to talk about, if we neglect to acknowledge the blood of Jesus, we're neglecting the one thing that is capable of washing away our sin. This is the way of salvation. This is the new system. The one that works. It's the new covenant. And to this end, we must sing this hymn in our hearts. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. 
dear friends, in Jesus Christ alone, our hope is found. God has dealt with our sin. He has paid for our sin. He has punished our sin in Jesus. And so let us ever give thanks to God for this one perfect sacrifice. If your faith is in Christ, it will save your soul. And that is why today is a good Friday. Amen.